0: welcome to the silver screen guide podcast where we discuss films from every genre so sit back relax and enjoy the podcast today we are discussing casablanca the second in our humphrey bogart retrospective series this is your co-host corbin
1: i'm alan from chicago
0: alan i want to know how do you pronounce Casablanca? do you say casablanca or casablanca
1: I've always pronounced it Casablanca, but when I heard Humphrey Bogart say it, he said Casablanca. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it's pronounced both ways in the movie.
0: It is, uh, it is.
1: So, I I always have just called it Casablanca.
0: See, I've always said Casablanca. Also, uh, no, I'm sorry. I actually always said it the opposite way. I've always said
1: Casablanca. Oh, I see how it is.
0: Yes. <laughs> I'm I'm just contradicting you. Just No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, I've I've actually always said Casablanca, but then I took a Spanish class in college. I come to find out that's really not the proper way to say it the proper way. Alan, you took Spanish as well. Yes, I did. We learned our vowels and it would be ah Casablanca.
1: Ah. So that's probably right. Yes. Aha.
0: You're right so all I think along. is wrong. Casablanca, for those of you who don't know, means White House.
1: Yes, in Spanish. It, well, yes,
0: in Spanish it means White House, and it is a real place in Morocco. Right. Yes. Casablanca, it came out not too long after the Maltese Falcon, actually, which was a very successful Humphrey Bogart movie. It, uh, so it's interesting because Casablanca initially here in the United States had kind of a special showing, you could say, on Thanksgiving Day in 1942 oh, yeah uh that was when it was first shown in the u.s i believe and then not long after that it got a wide release here in the u.s january 23rd 1943 which is funny because now january is the garbage season right um uh, interesting. i will say last january well no i guess this january you know of this year wasn't too bad from what i remember and next january we're getting m night Shyamalan's glass which looks pretty good so january seems to be getting a little better
1: right yeah i do remember when looking at the schedule of the movies that were being released in january and i know it's just kind of been a a thing for whatever reason that january has been picked uh to be a garbage month probably because it comes right after uh oscar season more or less Mm -hmm. uh but yeah this last year wasn't really all that bad, which was kind of surprising because it's just been somewhat of a tradition now, a more of a modern tradition to release the movies that are not going to be financially viable into this season. It's usually between anywhere in January, kind of bleeds into February and sometimes into March. But this year, it was more of February that was the bad month. Uh, And even then, it wasn't all that bad. Right.
0: And at the time, they weren't expecting this to be a blockbuster, or they just weren't expecting this to be some massive hit, per se. They, I mean, they were expecting it to do well, and it did do quite well. And critics at the time said it was a good movie. They didn't... I I don't think many people, many critics were raving about this movie. It really wasn't... It was more so uh, when it hit big at the Oscars, and then from then, it just steamrolled into, uh, well, I guess I should say snowballed into more and more prestige and memorability. Uh, definitely not anything like uh, what Citizen Kane experienced, where it had a lot of negative reaction and people like just didn't really care for it until right. later on. And now it's like considered one of the greats, just like this one is as well. So it's, it's different. People did like it when it came out.
1: Yeah, it's kind of even like this awkward camp where it's not like a sleeper hit like and yeah. uh, Kane was, uh, it had a great reception from when it was released and got some pretty good money when it was released yes. and then just continued to get better, I guess, be, continued to get more recognized in society as time went on. And I think up until 1977, it was considered to be the number one most broadcasted movie on TV because back then they did that a lot more often. They still do it now to some extent. But back then, uh, it was a big deal I guess, to have that movie as recognized as it was, because for whatever reason, it kind of just stayed in, I guess, the societal zeitgeist for a while. And Mm -hmm. even so today, it's still recognized as, once again, as you said, one of the greats up there with Citizen Kane.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. And originally, it was actually the, the whole kind of concept and idea for Casablanca was from a play by Murray Bennett and Joan Allison. But this play was never produced. They were young people who were uh, visiting. This is all during World War II. Uh, they were visiting friends and uh, kind of helping out some f- like some French friends, I believe, during World War II. And they wanted to write a pro-French resistance play and an anti-Nazi play. So they wrote this play called Everybody Comes to Rick's, and they couldn't find anybody to really produce it. They did find somebody, but it didn't really work out. So Warner Brothers actually bought the play for a record $20,000, and in today's money, that would be roughly $350,000, and that was... A first that was really unknown and a really surprising move especially because these were unknown writers and it was their very first play so it's really exciting that they got their play uh unproduced play first play bought
1: yeah that is pretty surprising i know that uh it was it's, i know that the director of this movie was passed on to somebody else but yeah that is very interesting that's a is that a lot of money to spend on a script? I mean, I guess in today's money, that does seem quite expensive for three hundred fifty thousand dollars. When you uh, acute when you take it with inflation,
0: yeah, it would be a really big deal because the play had never been produced. Nobody had ever seen it. They Warner Brothers simply simply read it and they believed in right. it so much, and they wanted to adapt it into a film, essentially. For somebody who's never written a play before and it's not even been produced, that's a pretty pretty big deal. And I know they felt kind of slighted by the movie was like huge and they didn't get like a lot of recognition. The, the screenplay writers were Julius Julius J. and Philip G. Epstein and Howard Koch and the director Michael Curtis. It was a, a Halby Wallace production. So all these people are getting all these accolades, and the people who originally came up with the play in the original concept weren't really even mentioned or in the spotlight at all. So I think they kind of tried to, like, sue Warner Brothers and say, give us more recognition or at least give us the rights to produce this play. And Warner Brothers was like, what are you talking about? We paid you. And then eventually they said uh, – then eventually Warner Brothers – this was, like, decades after. It might not have been until – the eighties when they were able to uh, produce it, their family was or something. So uh, it was a little bit of a kind of a mess on their part. It was kind of odd, but interesting.
1: I, yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't know about this, that they had some legal trouble. That's very interesting to me. So I've got a, I've got a question, Corbin. Uh, how many times have you seen this over your lifetime? Cause I know that my first time was at your house and we had planned on watching it. A number of times so I'm just curious to know what your history is with this
0: yeah the first time I saw it was with my dad I don't remember the year but it was a long time ago I would say probably 10 years or more when I saw this for the first time uh, that was how many years ago uh, we were kind of on a Humphrey Bogart kick we were kind of watching as many as we could get our hands on So that was the first time I saw Casablanca was at least over 10 years ago, and I've returned to it a few times since. This, honestly, and maybe the African queen uh, of the big ones are probably the ones that I've seen the least. I've seen Treasure of the Sierra Madre quite a few times. I would say five, six, maybe seven times. This one, honestly, I've probably seen, uh, I would say at least four times. It's possible five times, and I just don't remember. This is one of those movies that is so intricate that each watching is almost like watching it brand new. At least that how right. it is for me.
1: Right. I know with with me, I watched like I said earlier. I watched it once at your house, and then it came to the theaters here in my town, which is interesting because we kind of, if you've listened to past podcasts, you have picked up on the fact that the theaters around here are kind of weird. And we'll sometimes get random movies. Every Sunday, they try and show some kind of oldie around a certain time. Casablanca came. And it was like the 75th anniversary uh, that was running through. I think it was fandom. And of course, after seeing it, it was I, I went and saw it. And I have the ticket. And so I did get to see it in the theater, which is pretty cool. And yeah. so that at that point, it was about twice that I'd seen it. And then I got to watch it. Of course, for this, I watched it two times. So I've seen it four times. Uh, at this point uh, in my entire lifetime. But I didn't get to watch it until probably no more than a year, year and a half ago was my first time. Oh, wow. So I'm relatively new to this this movie. I've always heard about it. I just had never really sat down to ever watch it.
0: Yeah, and Alan knows this. Uh, we love it so much, well, my family and I, and we've. it's so iconic. We have a... poster of it right we have a poster we mounted in our theater room so that and the godfather and the very original star wars designed poster and alfred hitchcock's rear window those are oh and gone with the wind those are the posters that adorn our theater room wall for those of you curious what the rest of them are so yeah casablanca is a bit of a big deal and uh, that's
1: kind of an understatement too
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit of a big deal to us because we did choose to have it be one of the posters in the theater room. I'm glad we did. It's an iconic movie, especially after watching it with my SSG goggles on. I got so much more out of it than I had. Mm -hmm. Honestly, in at least story-wise and aesthetically, I got more out of it than I had before because this movie, you definitely got to pay attention.
1: Yeah, I kind of (laughs) discovered that... (laughs) Uh, especially when I watched in the theater for the second time, cause I'm like, okay, I'm picking up on a few things, but there is still so much that is so confusing to me, uh, because there's a lot, this, this movie is very dialogue heavy oh, yeah. and every line of dialogue is important for some purpose. And so that's, yeah, I, I do agree. This is a, this has a lot to it. It's very, it's a quite a dense movie.
0: I personally feel for those of you who listened to our previous review of the Maltese Falcon, I feel the Maltese Falcon is more dense and more dialogue heavy than this one. Not this one still is, but I think the Maltese Falcon is a little more. Right. Uh, one last note about the play before we shift into talking about the movie is the play is actually very similar to this movie. They're both quite the same. Uh, some of the things that are a little different is the names were slightly changed just slightly. Um, Well, except for Ilsa's name in the original play. Her name was uh, Lois Meredith and she was going to be an American and they changed it to Ilsa Lund for the movie. Also Sam was never called Sam in the play. His name or nickname I should say was the rabbit. Right. Uh, otherwise, it's fairly the the play is very similar except in the play it all takes place at Rick's.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, I mean the majority of this movie takes place at Rick's, but we do go outside and do other things, of course. That would be interesting to see, though, having an entire place set at the at the bar.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Oh, it would be. And uh, there. Uh, This one is directed by Michael Curtiz, who was born in Hungary. Uh, He also did The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. I haven't seen it. I know. Don't get on to me. I'm going to see it eventually. I know that one is like super famous. It's a classic. White Christmas, of course, I've seen. Great movie. And uh, he also did The Comancheros with John Wayne. I haven't seen that one.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen any of these. I know I've heard of them. I just haven't seen them.
0: You definitely should watch White Christmas this Christmas.
1: Yeah i I almost got to about two years ago, but then I didn't. Uh, so yeah.
0: Alan, I forgot to ask: Do you own this on Blu-ray?
1: I do. I I actually think I bought it for this uh, for this review. Oh, nice. Because I knew I knew we had it on the schedule, and it was also pretty cheap on Amazon. It was like this one was also like five bucks, same as uh, Poltergeist. We talked about that. Yes. They were both pretty cheap. I think I may have even bought them at the same time. Are relatively close. So yes, I do own this now on Blu-ray. It's just the standard Blu-ray case, but I wouldn't mind owning something like a steelbook or anything like that with this.
0: Something funny I found out was uh, Ingrid Bergman, who plays Elsa Lund. She's two inches taller than Humphrey Bogart. I know Humphrey Bogart is not a tall man. Him and I are about the same height, so that'll give you an estimate about how tall I am. Uh, My girlfriend is just slightly taller than me. So we're kind of in the same situation as Bogart and Bergman. So he either had to stand on blocks or they're sitting in scenes together. And the same thing actually happened a few years later when Hitchcock cast Claude Rains, who is also in this movie, in Bergman in his film Notorious. Claude Rains is even shorter than Humphrey Bogart. And for that movie, Rains uh, had to, he was basically always standing on a ramp during their scenes. I remember hearing that in a... Commentary with like Robert Osborne on TCM or something,
1: right? Right. I mean, yeah. I guess it is really no secret that Bogart is a pretty short person. Uh, I do know that they had to do some camera tricks, put him on stilts or put him on a block for a few scenes, so that way he looks taller. But yeah, that, that is just it is just kind of funny that Ingrid Bergman, which is oh, just slightly taller than him, there are a few scenes where you can tell that how short he actually is. Uh, but for the most part, it. Well, you wouldn't know it if you didn't – you wouldn't know that he was sh- as short as he is if you didn't already know that he was.
0: And he's not terribly short, I might add. Yeah. Because right. I'm not terribly short. Right. Uh, you know, he's probably about 5'7". That's what I'm at as well. Right. But uh, this movie, like we did mention a little bit earlier, was a crazy big hit at the Oscars. I dubbed it a chazelle success. That's kind of a retroactive term. Chazelle – Go back and listen to those reviews. Very amazing movies. Yeah, when they came out, they're kind of these like sleeper hits in a way because people like not many people can see them, get their hands on them. And then they come to the Oscars and they break all these records. And it's like, wait, what is this movie? So like we said, people did like it when it came out in theaters. But I don't think people realized it was going to get nominated for eight Academy Awards. And when
1: that's a even back then, that's a. A big deal.
0: Oh, yeah. That's a very big deal. And then it went on to win three big ones. It won Best Picture of the Year. This is Best Picture, ladies and gentlemen. Naturally. Michael Curtis won Best Director. And it was also it also won Best Screenplay. No surprises there.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, there really is no surprise with those awards. Uh, even today with how what kind of a legacy is left behind. It doesn't surprise me at all that it won. I'm actually kind of surprised it didn't win more at uh, the Oscars. Yeah.
0: No, I, I am too. Uh, Humphrey Bogart was up for Best Actor. I think he should have got it. I can't definitively say that, but because uh, I haven't seen the other movies. The, uh, the right. Oscar went to Paul Lucas, who won for Watch on the Rhine. Heard okay. of it. Vaguely haven't seen it. Uh, Claude Rains was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, This was nominated for Best Cinematography, Black and White. It should have won. Oh, my
1: gosh. Do you know who beat it out?
0: No, I didn't. I didn't look. Back then, there was actually two separate categories, one for black and
1: white, one for color. Right. And I do know, speaking of color, that this movie was at one point colorized and came under some really heavy scrutiny for doing so, probably for good reason. I do actually, this morning I was talking to my dad, I told him that, we're, that today's the Casablanca review, and he asked me if I watched it in color, and I said, no, I hadn't. Uh, I said, I knew that it was pretty controversial, and he said, yeah, I don't watch it in color. And I said, yeah, oh, <laughs> well, obviously not.
0: So, <laughs> so it sounds like he, he saw it in color, or some of it, and I, it was yeah,
1: bad. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, I don't know if he's seen it in color, or if he's seen like parts of it in color. Uh, but he and that one And I think I mentioned this in It's a Wonderful Life and I'm a review for that That I, I did watch that in color and I didn't like it uh, There are just some movies That are made in black and white And just work best if they're in black and white
0: Yeah That also has to do with how it's lit It's purposely lit right. in black and white To make right. it look a certain way And then when you colorize it It ruins it I did see some still images from the colorized version, yeah, so did I. It looked abhorrent.
1: Yeah, it looks. It just. It just looks weird. Oh, it looks horrible. It doesn't really. It doesn't feel right.
0: Man, I don't know. If I saw a colorized version, it would just ruin the movie for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's why. I mean, the the Blu-ray that I that I bought for It's a Wonderful Life had a had a certain disc, a separate disc for the colorized version. Once again, not even worth your time. And yes, I would probably say with this movie as much as I as much as I've seen, probably not even worth your time either. You probably can't even find it. If no. you can find it, I'd be surprised. Oh
0: yeah, it would be extremely hard to find it. And as I said, there was a best cinematography category for black and white and for color right. movies, so there was color movies. But uh, the movie was also nominated for best film editing and best music, aka best original score. Uh, you'll notice Bergman. Didn't get nominated for this movie, but she was actually up for an Oscar for a different movie called For Whom the Bell Tolls. She didn't get it. And I noticed at that year's Oscars, and it's kind of this way still today, but mostly that year, there was just like a set, a certain set of movies, and they were nominated in like every category, it seemed like.
1: Right. Right. And we see this every once in a while, like uh, Titanic or. La La Land a couple of years ago. Right. There's just that one movie that the Academy just explodes over. Every once in a while, this happens.
0: And currently, today, as of today's recording, it is IMDb. According to the users, it's the 36th greatest film of all time.
1: It's uh, really high up there. It
0: mm-hmm. is definitely high up there. I might argue it should even should be even higher.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know I've searched through that list, and I know it was above it and below it, but yeah, I would probably agree with that. I guess that might be showing your hand a little bit, but <laughs> at, at this point, at this point, though, it, it it really should be no surprise.
0: I believe it has
1: a eight point five on IMDb. Yeah, I, I think it was either eight point five or eight point four. Either way, it's still a very high score. Yes, uh, to high. be that high in the list, yeah.
0: Oh, also, Alan, have you been to yes. Disney World in Florida?
1: Once, way back in the day. I remember very little, except that it was very hot. Okay. Uh, yeah, just a little bit. Yes, I do. I've, I've been there, but I don't remember very much.
0: Okay, well, there's four, I think there's at least four or five different theme parks that you could right. actually go to in Disney World. It's not just one big thing. But I believe it was at the MGM Studios one. Uh, Disney's The Great Movie Ride. One of my favorite Disney
1: rides. Okay, yeah. I know for a fact I didn't get to go on that. Oh. Uh, we may have looked at MGM Studios, but most of our time was spent in Magic Kingdom. I do remember that much. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: Yes, I went on that ride three or four times in a row. I loved it. It's really cool because it is quite transportive into some of the greatest movie scenes of all time. My personal favorite on the ride, for those of you interested, is the alien sequence. Oh, it really feels like you're on the Nostromo with Sigourney Weaver. Oh, yeah. I've heard good things about that. It's so good. But I did want to mention the final scene of this movie is a part of the great movie ride.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So, well, I'm kind of jealous I have not get a good go to that. Oh. I mean, to be fair, at the time I wasn't as big into movies as I am now, but still.
0: I think you'd appreciate it a lot more now.
1: Yeah. If I ever get the chance, which is very doubtful, <laughs> right now.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I do recommend, listeners, if you're in Florida, go hit up The Great Movie Ride, and that'll give you a bit more of an experience with this movie, a tangible one. So are we ready to uh, talk about the plot?
1: I think so. Let's do it.
0: All right, listeners, we are about to spoil Casablanca. So I do say, I do suggest you hit pause right now if you don't want this movie spoiled for you. And once you go and watch it, come back and hit play, and we will be ready to talk about Casablanca. It is the height of World War II. People are fleeing Europe en masse to seek refuge in America. The only way to escape the continent is by way of Lisbon-Portugal, the tip of Western Europe, with the only, with only the Atlantic between it and freedom. Alas, many can't get to Lisbon, so a torturous refugee trail is formed from Paris to Marseille, across the Mediterranean to Oran and Algeria, then by train or auto or foot, across the rim of Africa to French Morocco, the city of Casablanca where lucky ones might get exit visas and take a plane to Lisbon, thereby securing their freedom in a new world. But not everyone is so lucky, and everyone else waits, waits, waits in Casablanca. Here we find Richard Blaine, played by Humphrey Bogart, age 37, a native of New York, and a man without a country. He runs Rick's Café American, the most popular nightclub in Casablanca. Rick is feared by men and adored by women. The police respect him and the Nazis hate him. One night, one of Rick's frequent patrons, a man named Ugarte, played by Peter Lori, which you should recognize from Maltese Falcon, carries with him two carte blanche transit visas, which he leaves with Rick for safekeeping for only an hour. Unfortunately, the Nazis arrived that same day. Even though Morocco is neutral French territory. A few days prior, two Nazis carrying transit visas were murdered and the documents stolen. Also, a legendary freedom fighter, Victor Laszlo, played by Paul Henreid, who escaped a concentration camp and then the clutches of the Nazis multiple times, has also arrived in Casablanca. The Nazis are intent on recovering the transit visas and ensuring Laszlo doesn't escape. While at Rick's, Ugarte is apprehended, but not without a gunfight. And Laszlo arrives shortly after with a beautiful woman named Ilsa Lund, played by Ingrid Bergman. Rick's talented piano player, Sam, played by Dooley Wilson, is concerned by Ilsa's arrival. Come to find out, Sam and Ilsa know each other. She asks him to play as time goes by, which upsets Rick upon hearing it, but he's even more upset to find out who requested it. He plays off Ilsa and Laszlo's arrival as no big deal, but that night in his empty cafe, he revels in a drunken stupor about his and Ilsa's past. See, a year and a half ago, right before the Germans invaded Paris, Rick and Elsa were madly in love despite knowing little about each other. We learn Rick is a decent amount older than Ilsa, but strongly desires to marry her right away. When the Nazis invade, Ilsa promises to meet Rick at the train station that night, but sends a letter instead explaining she can't come and he can't ask why, but she hopes he knows she'll always love him and that God will bless him. That was a year and a half ago, and they haven't seen each other since. Nor did they believe they would ever see each other again. When Elsa comes to explain why she left him and why she's back, Rick, wanting to hurt her the way she hurt him, cruelly drives her away. The next day, at the police station, the head Nazi, Major Strasser, played by Conrad Veidt, and police captain Louis Renault, played by Claude Rains, promise Laszlo and Ilsa safe passage to Lisbon only if they give up the names of the heads of resistance in all the major cities. When Laszlo refuses, he is told he will be detained in Casablanca indefinitely. The two go to meet Ferrari, played by Sydney Greenstreet, who you should know from the Maltese Falcon, previous Academy Awards. For- this is
1: basically a Maltese Falcon 2.0.
0: It is. It's, uh, I think it's kind of a secret sequel. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs>
1: It's a secret, a a sleeper uh, successor.
0: Apparently. It it was kind of funny to say, see Bogart, then Peter Lorre, then Sidney Greenstreet. And it's like, hey, wait a minute.
1: Wait a minute.
0: So the two go to meet Ferrari, who runs the black market of the town, hoping he can provide them passage out of the city. He explains he could only get Ilsa out, which her husband agrees is a good plan, but she refuses to leave him. Ferrari tips them off that Rick has carte blanche transit visas. That night, Laszlo goes to a meeting with the resistance, and Ilsa goes to Rick begging him for the visas. When he retorts with a hard-hearted reply, she pulls a gun on him, which he quickly sees through as a false desperate attempt. Alas, Ilsa can't resist Rick. It was unbearable for her to leave him. She falls into his arms, kissing him, declaring she'll never leave him again, and explains the reason she left him in Paris, was she learned her husband... Victor Laszlo was actually not dead, but barely alive, and she had to go to him. But this time, she plans on leaving her husband to stay with Rick, when he promises to get her husband out of Casablanca safely. Laszlo, slightly wounded from the police raid on the meeting, arrives at Rick's. He tells Rick he can't outrun himself, meaning Rick, and there's more to life than getting by. We have to choose a life of either good or evil. He's interrupted when the police come to arrest him. The next day, Rick goes to Renault to explain he's actually going to use the visas to get him and Ilsa out of Casablanca, and in return, he'll let Laszlo be taken by the Germans for attempting to flee the country. A cruel turn on the plan he made with Ilsa. That night, he has Renault hide upstairs while Laszlo is released from prison, and him and Ilsa come to Rick's. When they arrive, Ilsa is shocked when Renault comes down the stairs to find Rick betrayed her, her trust and her husband double crossed. But Rick pulls the real trick by putting the gun on Renault, who then pretends to call the airport, but instead calls the Nazis to intercept them at the airport. Once they arrive, Rick has Laszlo's luggage placed on board, which prompts Ilsa to ask, what about us? To which Rick responds, we'll always have Paris, that perfect dream. We lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. She protests, Richard, I said I'll never leave you. And you never will, he says. But I've got a job to do, and where I'm going, you can't follow. Here's looking at you, kid. Laszlo congratulates Rick. Welcome back to the fight. I know this time our side will win. The two board the plane, and right as it's taking off, Major Strasser arrives to command the plane to land, and at the same time, shooting at Rick, but Rick shoots first, killing Major Strasser. The police arrive, but instead of giving up Rick, Renault gives the command, round up the usual suspects. As the two walk down the runway together, they plan to leave Casablanca to fight for freedom, to which Rick declares, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, as credits roll.
1: Pretty sure that it's no surprise how influential Casablanca is, just in a general sense. There are things in this movie that happen in other movies because they happened here first, and were so influential, and were so well done. There's no surprise how influential Casablanca is to this to cinema, just in general.
0: Oh, yeah. Lots of people have drawn from this film in many different ways. Uh, the, even We even get movie titles, The Usual Suspects.
1: Right. The Usual Suspects. I remember seeing an episode of The Fair of the Parents that referenced Casablanca in this final scene with the airplane. Vividly in my mind, there it's just kind of sprinkled throughout everything because it was so influential and so not necessarily not necessarily ground, as groundbreaking as like Sis and Kane was at the time, but like as much as as in terms of like a narrative and things in that movie and some things like that went on to be to be referenced in many other works because this is considered to be one of the greats and probably for good reason.
0: I wouldn't be surprised if George Lucas watched this and drew a little inspiration for the Han Solo Greedo scene where it's like they shoot at the same time, but Bogart shot first. And
1: And I would even say, uh, maybe even some of Rick's design kind of reminds me of Indiana Jones a little bit, especially like in the opening of the second one. He, Indiana Jones is wearing the white top black pants and Rick wears that throughout almost the entire movie whenever he's in the bar. I mean, that's probably might just even be a coincidence, but I'm I can feel that there is some Indiana Jones like aesthetic taken off of Rick's character design.
0: Yeah, uh, I would absolutely agree with that. And despite Humphrey Bogart just being an iconic actor and a stand up guy, yeah, this character of Rick is he's the total package. Like I said in the description, men respect him, he's like the only man people really trust. He, for the most part, has a moral standard. He looks out for people. Women are just always fawning over him. They can't resist him. The police respect him. And even the Nazis, even though he's on the Nazi blacklist, they still have this respect for him.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting because okay, because we kind of get this idea early on that Casablanca uh, is a... Casablanca, where it's at, is very neutral. It's a neutral state. There really is no one that is in control of it. It's just kind of in the middle of all this. That's why we have both the French and the Germans, and then you got Rick in the middle of everything. It, Rick himself is, as well, and is, 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 as well as his establishment of Rick's, the cafe or bar, they're very neutral people. And then as the film goes along kind of tying into why or what happened at the time you can't it, it essentially pulls rick into this dichotomy of uh i have to do something and if i don't do nothing ever do and if i do nothing then things are just gonna get worse he can't st- in this movie he cannot stay neutral and do the right thing at the same time uh we come to find this is kind of a big thing back in around this time this is right when the war i guess had began uh world war ii when america finally stepped into world war ii um no sorry it was when it ended uh but at the time everything in terms of propaganda and in terms of uh like different kind of products if it wasn't aiding the war then it really was essentially useless the society and that kind of is a heavy influence on this movie
0: yes the movie came out 43 was shot around 42 premiered in 42 The movie takes Mm. place December 1942, and the movie, when it was released, this movie did take place during World War II. World War II wouldn't be over for another year, two years.
1: For some reason, I had in my head that this movie came out in 1946. I'm thinking of a different movie.
0: No, no. So World War II was not over yet. So this was during World War II, and you're right. We can't have a hero of a major U.S. production. Not do something in order uh, to not really help the war effort, but, and we know he is an American, but the way he does it is uh, very interesting. He, we learn in mm-hmm. the past he was kind of a freedom fighter in two different areas, and he plays it off as, yeah, I just wanted the money, but Renault says, well, the winning side would have paid better. Right, And uh, that's that's very telling to show we, we know that Rick has this moral baseline, despite him seemingly not to throughout certain parts of the movie where it's like, oh, wow, okay, he's going to do that. But then come to find out he will actually do the right thing eventually or ultimately.
1: Right. And that kind of goes to just America in general uh, with Rick's character, because at the time when World War II had started up, America kind of stayed away from it as much as they could until Pearl Harbor was bombed and then we jumped in and we got ourselves involved after that. Kind of similar to how this works. Rick himself is pretty much neutral throughout the entire movie until a certain point. Then he's like, okay, now I have to do something. And he picks a certain side there uh, towards the end of the movie. It, it, once again, this movie is at the, at the baseline saying you can't just remain neutral on certain, on certain elements. There are some things where you have to take the stance and you have to do the right thing. Uh, which is very interesting because me personally, I'm a pretty neutral person, but at the same time, there are th- there are times when you can't remain neutral, that the neutral state is sometimes the worst idea.
0: Yeah, and we do get a important, kind of have a pivotal scene there towards the end where Laszlo and Rick have a conversation where Laszlo right. sees that Rick is a good guy and because of life circumstances, he has essentially fled to neutral territory, to Casablanca, where he can just kind of live out his life alone and not get hassled by really anybody. But right, that's just not how life works. Eventually, something's going to be dropped on your doorstep that you have to deal with. In this case, it's Ilsa and Laszlo and the Nazis. And it all kind of spirals out of control very quickly. And Laszlo says, essentially, you you have to pick a side in life. You either have to choose good or evil, and you can't just remain neutral forever. Uh, Which is what he was really trying to do. And you see he's like even neutral with his patrons and with his relationships. He doesn't get too romantically involved. He doesn't care to befriend really any of his patrons. Won't even have a drink with them. He has cordial relationships. And you'll notice in the beginning when uh, Peter Lorre's character Ugarte says, Can you keep these visas? Rick says, Only for an hour. I don't want them here overnight implying, I don't want to get involved in this. I don't want any trouble. So you you can really see right off the bat his neutral characteristics, but then his good side bleeds in in very organic ways.
1: Right. And it's interesting too, because up until the point when Ugarte approaches him, we do kind of see him be a rather neutral person. And then this is, of course, what you would consider to be the end of the first act, more or less, he makes the decision to kickstart the plot. He makes this decision to hide these uh, letters of transit, and he kind of leans over to the side that he was all, at the same time kind of opposing because he does say that he doesn't like uh, he doesn't like this kind of business. It's kind of immoral business because you're you're more or less transporting humans and for and making them pay for freedom more or less. He doesn't like that. He sees it as a dirty business, but he also, in a certain, in a certain way, participates in that and helps out Ugarte, only for uh, only what was supposed to be a little bit for an hour. Accidentally kickstarts this entire movie, and he hides the letters. And even though the Germans later uh, search his entire place, they don't find it. Uh, either way. This is what Rick, I guess, is also somewhat of a flaw of him, This that he does kind of lean towards the this one side, and he has he stated at one point in the movie, He's he leans towards the underdog because he feels that that is right, no matter if they win or not. Uh, this is the more morally correct choice in his own mind, is to go this one route, even though he tries to remain as neutral as he can throughout most of, the, for a lot of this movie.
0: Well, the very opening plot begins with these two German officers murdered on this train from Iran. And they. we hear in uh, the beginning, Renault say, round up twice the usual number of suspects, which is a callback to, uh, well, it kind of foreshadows what he does and how he'll do that right. in the very end. That's a very nice um, dialogue callback. I have to say, almost every time I've watched this movie – I've been kind of confused on this opening on these documents. I've not that I haven't paid attention in the past, but it's all happens fairly quickly, and you're like, "Wait, what are these documents? Where do they come from?" And then you're like, oh, "Okay, this is how they get these documents." It all goes quite quite fast, and you really do have to pay attention. And I've rewound this movie a number of times to make sure I had everything correct. Right. So yeah, the the opening is. Kind of confusing, I will say, Uh, if you're not like, I I recommend turning on subtitles, but I finally got it this time around for probably the first time, like the full everything that's going on.
1: Yeah, and I can attest to that in my own previous viewings before this time around. Uh, I always heard what they were saying, but it was hard for me to take that and uh, tie it into the rest of the plot because there were... 40 other things happening also at once. At the same time, though, that is kind of necessary. This movie has a lot going on, but for pretty good reason. And yeah, even this time around, uh, although I wasn't as confused at first, I did understand where different pieces of the plot start fitting into the story. And so I wasn't as confused this last time around when I watched it before this review. Uh, But yeah, you are correct. There is a—this movie, we mentioned this earlier, is pretty dense. Uh, for good reason, uh, there there's a lot that they have to get through because uh, at the same time that there is a war going on, but there are also different ideas that are floating around, and and Rick is kind of set in the middle of all of these things, uh, so it makes sense why it's here. But it, I do agree, is a bit a bit confusing uh, to have everything thrown at you at one time. Once again, that's kind of just the name of the game here.
0: Yes, this movie is quite intricate, even with the opening. Uh, kind of monologue right? opening audio where it gives you all this background information about Lisbon and Casablanca and this trail and getting here and there I even had to rewatch that to begin with to make sure I understood all of the locations and their meaning what they're doing Casablanca is kind of the second to last stop before getting to America right. they would basically have to fly north to Portugal And then from Portugal, which is where Lisbon is located, then they would fly across the Atlantic. And Ugarte, somehow, who knows, he murdered these two German officers and he took these transit visas. And these transit visas are kind of this, uh, I would say, Rick and Ilsa and Laszlo. Those three are kind of like the major players in the plot, but what's all kind of tying them together and kind of fueling everything, like the foil for the movie, is the transit visas. They all need the transit visas in some way or another to get out of the place. Now, I wouldn't say it's prominent to the degree like the Falcon is in the Maltese Falcon. It's not really about that. It's about much more than that. But you have to understand these trans- the importance of these transit visas to get the importance of the rest of the movie.
1: Right, the the transit visas here are a, basically their ticket to freedom, uh, because they even mentioned at one point if they if they see this ticket, it's essentially a free pass, no questions asked. If they see this, because they are just that important, uh, these these transit visas, because they're signed by pretty high officials uh, in the Nazi the Nazi army. Uh, so yeah, essentially Casablanca once again stands for White House, you know, not like we have one here in America, <laughs> but. The the point is this is kind of like the symbol of almost a freedom. It's the last stop. A lot of people get stopped here as we find out. A lot of people come here to try and find these visas, these exit visas, to get to America because that's where the freedom is, and they just kinda get they just kind of halt and they can't really go any further for one reason or another. Um, then we also of course we've got the usual suspects that are just flying around. There's a lot at one point they say here in Casablanca that human life is cheap. And because of the name of the game, once again, they're selling, they're getting people to pay them for exit visas, and there's a lot of rest going on, and all kinds of stuff. There's Casablanca is like this symbol for hope, and Rick's is like this very the most neutral ground because everything happens at Rick's, but Rick himself is also a very neutral person. And even though everything happens here, there are even transit visas being sold here, there's gambling in the back room. There really isn't much that happens until the Germans show up and they try to find they try to arrest Ugarte and then they try to make uh Laszlo stay. And so yeah, Casablanca is this once again the symbol of just pure freedom right before you can get to the actual freedom which is in America.
0: So let's go ahead and talk about the Rick's uh, sequence. I did actually go back and uh, time it to make sure because it is a very long sequence, but it doesn't even feel that way to me.
1: Yeah, it is. It is quite a lengthy sequence.
0: Yeah, so Rick's, when we get to Rick's, it's portioned into separate scenes. It's all basically one sequence, though. Uh, Many different things happen, but they did a good job of kind of partitioning out uh, different events in his cafe so we get to Rick's six and a half minutes into the movie, and we don't leave until 35 and a half minutes in.
1: Yeah, So we spend a lot of time here. And this is it's kind of funny because we're essentially introduced in almost every important character aside from Laszlo and Oza uh, right at this beginning before we get to Rick himself.
0: Yes. And so, like I said, we spend about half an hour Yeah, Rick's, and it's which is a long time, but it's really cool that this movie takes the time to basically let us live in this environment and it becomes more specified as the scene goes along. Because at first, we kind of get this like jovial overall shot of Rick's as a really wonderful place, it seems to be an escape from the horrors of World War II, from Europe and Africa, and then we narrow in on intimate conversations and see it's not just all laughing and merrymaking people are plotting to leave men are in despair women are hawking their jewelry to get out of here and uh those intimate conversations are uh, i really like how it kind of has this broad overall and then it drills down and then it even further drills down into pivotal characters within the overall movie
1: Right, right. Yeah, we do start off with uh, one of the good scenes is, well, at first we see a guy, one of the first things we see is a guy taking another man's wallet. And he comes back later and takes a second guy's wallet there towards the later part of the movie. But then we've also got uh, this girl who, in the, I think it's in the scene you're talking about, she's talking to one of the guys trying to get an exit visa and she has, says, I'll give up my diamond for this. Yes. And he goes... The diamond's worthless. We have so many of them floating around in this this area. Yeah, it kind of just drills down. And so you kind of understand, okay, this is the state of economy that we're at. The reason why Casablanca is booming is because so many people are coming there and spending so much money on exit visas. So once again, the economics of Casablanca is kind of high because people are spending so much money. Uh, here in this, not necessarily Rick's, but just in this place in general. And so, yeah, you do get this, you get an overall sense, not necessarily for just like Rick's place in general, but just even Casablanca all the way around in terms of where it's at socioeconomically and where it's at in terms of its current state in society.
0: And we do get a very nice introduction to who Rick is before we even see him and can find out for ourselves by what he does. Because people are saying, "Will Rick have a drink with us?" And we learn he never drinks with customers. And the guy says, "Tell him I'm the second largest banker in Switzerland." And the waiter says, "He wouldn't be impressed." The head of the largest bank is now our chef.
1: Right. And it's just right. And even at one and at one point when we are introduced to Rick, we, this is once again kind of uh, tied back into what just happened. He kicks a guy out, even though he clearly has a lot of money, and he says, "I've been to every yeah. gambling bar." basically everywhere and Rick says I don't care and kicks him out.
0: Yeah, Rick is such an impressive character. Uh mm-hmm. man, he's so magnetic his uh how he how he kind of treats people not like in the way of kicking people out. I'm not trying to say that, but just uh the respect that he commands of people is oh, a yeah. really magnetic characteristic of him and it Bogart portrays it so well that's why yeah. I'm just I'm shocked he didn't get the oscar
1: yeah i am i am i am too i mean humphrey bogart is just at this point as well has been kind of known to be one of the greatest actors of the time Kind of like our, I guess, right now it would be maybe Matthew McConaughey or Tom Cruise. Tom Hanks, I guess, would be a great example of this. At the time, he was the Tom Hanks of the, I guess, the uh, the golden age of cinema.
0: Yes, and honestly, I can see a lot of this opening scene. I can see Tim Burton kind of recreating it in his uh, '90s Batman movie, where everybody's having a great time at Wayne Manor and Michael Keaton's character Batman. Nobody really knows that's him. And he's just kind of mingling with the crowd and walking around. And then everybody kind of has heard of this legendary Bruce Wayne and character definitely can see this. The parallels are very strong. I can also see Marlon Brando drawing some inspiration for his portrayal of Don Corleone with, uh, from Rick's character here because, uh, also just even some of the way, uh, Rick is shot is very similar to the way, uh, coppola shoots Brando. Uh just a we we have a great intro to Rick. We get this great upward shot of him and we already have an idea of who he is and uh just a very uh very Don esque kind of guy in a certain way. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I do like this kind of after he meets with Ugarte, which is one of the first interactions he has here. Uh, he, we do kind of figure out where he stands in this in this field when it comes to uh, people being sold these exit visas. He's kind of not on, really on board, but still somewhat accepts Ugarté's deal of just just take it for an hour. Uh, and it's interesting because right after uh, right after this scene, we have um, we have the song "Knock on Wood" being played which is no coincidence in this movie that he himself, uh, Bogart, uh, Rick, I guess, is trying not to get his hands too deep into this, uh, this entire economics when it comes to selling these exit visas. He himself accidentally grabs on and tries to help one of the guys out, even for just a little bit. And next thing we know, he's into the story and the song Knock on Wood is playing right after this. It's no coincidence.
0: Yeah, and Ugarte's character in today's terms he would kind of be thought of I would think as kind of a coyote, which is what you would call someone who smuggles someone from Mexico across the US border. He seems to be doing that as well. He's basically smuggling people out of the country and then right, uh, right after that we are introduced to Sydney Greenstreet Sydney Greenstreet's character Ferrari, who basically wants to buy Rick's Cafe and He's like, well, then can I buy Sam? And Rick says, I don't sell human beings. And I was like, I'm really glad to hear that. I think that's a great statement that his character makes and that the movie makes. And the movie does this a number of times. The story does, I should say, where uh, these very admirable qualities and admirable things, especially during a time in uh, the country where uh, racial the racial climate was legally segregated
1: right yeah at the time and even in a lot of other movies the anybody who wasn't really white wasn't exactly portrayed the best uh, as as in general right. I guess you could say of course things got much better as time went on but yeah this is one of the one of those exceptions where it maybe is a little bit surprising to see a, a character who is not white portrayed in a way, Uh, that is rather high in status, I guess you could say.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important, actually, that it shows uh, a white man and a black man who are friends, and one is not superior to the other, portrayed on screen. I think that was a big deal. Um, There's uh, My dad and I recently just watched The Omega Man, and there is an interracial relationship in that movie, which is a really big deal, because... That kind of a relationship just became legal in the United States four years prior to the release of the movie.
1: Right, right. So it's kind of a new thing, and the society at the time is still kind of warming up to this, of course.
0: Right. Uh, also, it's important to note that while Rick doesn't he, – he's not like a Mr. Uh, – well, I'm trying to think of how to say this. We could see women – love rick they think he's just amazing and they want to be with him but he's not going to treat them bad that doesn't mean he's going to lead them on i guess that was the word that i was looking for but uh he's not going to lead them on but he's not going to disrespect them which i think is also important to note rick is still respectful to women
1: right i do think it's very interesting that you bring this up and really just Yvonne's character in general, because the first time we meet her, she's getting after it because she's asking, where were you at, you know? And we come to find out later that maybe the reason why she didn't exactly maybe the reason why she and later on she moves on and it's kind of like dating more or less this this german officer and probably the reason why rick didn't even decide to hang out with her is probably because her loyalty was kind of questionable uh she goes from being on rick's side on i guess the free french's side sort of and then moves on over to the german side because i guess maybe they even pay more we don't really know we do kind of know that she is uh, what would be more considered a prostitute in today's terms, I guess you could say, at least that's what she's made out to be in this movie. It's very interesting that we do kind of see this dichotomy of Rick pushing her away. And then later when she comes back the second time, she's being let on, she's being courted by a German officer. And then they get into a squabble between a French, a French uh, soldier. And then another thing happened. That's much later in the movie though.
0: Yes. Uh, it's interesting because Rick is like one of the only characters of of the major characters, at least, aside from Laszlo, of course. Renault loves to use women. Uh, even this married lady that we come to find out later on, he's kind of trying to use her for his own advantage. And right. Yvonne does let herself be used. And uh, I thought that was funny when she walked into the bar to get Rick's attention with the German officer. Rick could care less. <laughs> right, And he right. tells Renault, he's like, looks like you missed your chance with her. Um, but regardless, these are all great things that we're bringing up on purpose to show the contrast to his character. Although he tries to play it off as, like we said before, kind of this neutral character and all of it is still a contrast because Renault doesn't really have morals at all.
1: Yeah, he jumps back and forth all over this movie. I, I, there is an interesting detail that I found out that I saw the first time and then it was oh, the first time I watched it and then it was solidified this next time. Uh, Renault himself, he gets a lot of wine to drink with people. Mm-hmm. Like he, Every time he, especially in this, in couple, this opening scene <laughs> yes. and later on in the second opening scene, he'll get a bottle of wine or get wine to drink and then they never finish it. I don't think there was one scene where this is where they actually finished the wine that they're given with Renault. But yeah, you are right. Renault kind of jumps around. He's kind of a, a people pleaser, I guess you could say. Oh, yeah. Um, he jumps around. He's trying to be good and nice to the Germans that are showing up there, the Nazi. I guess the Gestapo, I guess, is what they're considered. And then he's also very nice. He's also really good friends with Rick uh, in, this, in this movie. Yeah, his loyalty is, I guess, a little bit questionable, but you come to find out later that even though his loyalty is a bit questionable, he still has some kind of a moral standard with him because he does try to do what's right there towards the end when he's with Rick. It even goes along with Rick's Rick's plan there at the end.
0: And I think it's important how the characters will finally end up, despite what they've done throughout the movie. It's the final act of the character that will solidify at least to the audience, whether they have been good or bad or what kind of character they are. And yes, you're right. He does make the good choice at the end. Now it's still in his own fashion, uh, kind of morally ambiguous where he's going to be like, well, let's just arrest, you know, people that didn't do anything wrong per se. And uh, he did, he did call the Nazis. So he was, um, I guess one could make the argument. Maybe he wanted the Nazi guy to get shot. We don't know that for certain, but uh, regardless, yes, he does land on the right side in the end, which I think is the right thing to do because he is a really likable character, uh, despite him being a scoundrel. But uh, yeah. we don't want the audience to turn against him, per se, in the end.
1: Right, right. And it's not long after Yvonne gets kicked out. Actually, I think it's the scene right after this. Uh, we come to find out a little bit about Rick's past. And one guy asked him, why did you leave? Uh, why did you leave America? Was it because you slept with the senator's wife? Was it because you killed a man? And he goes a combination. He says one other thing I can't remember what it was, but he says a combination of all three. And he said I came to Casablanca for the water for my health. And he goes, yeah. Well, there's if you looked around, there's desert. And he goes, yeah. Well, I was misinformed. And we get this slight detail, and come to find out more details later as to what Rick did in the past and why he's even in Casablanca. Because yeah, he's an American clearly, but why is he staying in Casablanca? Why not go back to where free? And clearly in this opening, he has enough money to do so. It would be no problem for him to get an exit pizza for himself and head back home.
0: Are you talking about the scene where he's looking at the plane taking off?
1: No, there's a scene right after. Well, actually, I guess it would have been right when the plane takes off when they're sitting outside. Uh, I think it. You know, it is with Ronald when, he, when this conversation happens. It's right after they kick Yvonne out because he walks out with the waiter and tells him to come back. Yes. And then he walks over and sits with Renault. Yeah. So that's where I am. I
0: love that scene where he goes yeah. outside of Rick's Cafe to take a break. Renault comes out there with him. And Bogart gives us this perfect longing consideration, uh, this, this expression of almost doubt as well of this plane taking off where we can see he's really not that happy with his predicament, with where he's at in life. He, uh, and Renault kind of calls that out on him. He says, what well, you have the power you could go get on that plane and leave but you can't can you and why can't you and i think it's more so of this um kind of just this bitter conscience that rick has of how everything's turned out and he knows if he went back to the u.s he would probably have to fight in the war somehow uh can't stay in uh, any other part of europe because he's on the nazis blacklist so he really is this man without a country and he feels that Casablanca is the best place where he can basically prosper, you know, commands a lot of respect in the town. But uh, we know that there's more to his character underneath. And I think this scene portrays that really well.
1: Yeah. And then you this is, I think, one of, I guess, the opening also had an airplane. But this is the scene where it really solidifies the symbol of the airplane, which is of course, anything in the air, like a bird, usually or even an airplane in this instance, is meant to symbolize freedom. And of course, that is not nothing different here. This plane is shown a couple of times, with especially with Rick looking up and watching it fly away once here, once another time, and then once at the very end when uh, when uh, Elza and Laszlo get on the plane, they fly off. Yeah, the plane here is more of a symbol of freedom, and Rick's always on the ground looking up towards the plane, watching the plane take off and going to the sky, and to re- essentially oblivion. It's, it's The plane in itself is a symbol of freedom here, and you get this sense, along with the context of the rest of the dialogue in the scene, that that is what his long is, is to become free again, but yeah, like you said, he is kind of a man without a country. He's done things where he isn't accepted really anywhere, and so right now he's in Casablanca, which, as we stated before, is kind of this neutral ground for everything else that's happening in the world, uh, and that's really the best place that Rickfield that he needs to be at the moment.
0: And the sequence doesn't stay neutral for long because Ugarte is about to get arrested and he starts shooting the soldiers. Right. And I was like, whoa, this this ratcheted up quickly. And I think this is a great intense scene for a, a thing that's been fairly mundane. But I think we come to realize this isn't out of the ordinary in Casablanca um, right. because the club isn't shut down. People don't run and flee out of the club People get shot, and then they just kind of carry on afterwards, and they're like, you know, it's okay, this guy's a nutcase, we're taking him out of here. So it kind of also gives you a sense of the climate of Casablanca, people are just used to this essentially, but then once Ugarte leaves, we're introduced to, or at least we hear about a new character named Victor Laszlo, who is this freedom fighter, and he was in the eyes of the Germans printing lies in Prague and... Um, he escaped from a concentration camp, which is really amazing. And he also escaped through the Nazis three times in Paris, I think is what they said. So he's built up to be this larger than life character who I would almost say is kind of the opposite of, uh, Rick. They both were freedom fighters, but Rick kind of chose the path of least resistance. And this guy is choosing the path of most resistance to the Nazis.
1: Right, and it is interesting too because although the opposite, they are also as well very similar because their ideals. They are ideals. Uh, although uh, Velasco definitely has a lot more power at the current age than what at least politically than what uh, than what Rick, what Rick has. This is once again displayed later on in the movie when they have more or less this sing off between uh, the battle of the bands. I guess you could say between the Germans and the rest of the people at Rick's. The I guess the freedom French, the free French. But yeah, you get this. You get this kind of dichotomy of what Rick used to be played through Laszlo, and he at first is kind of objectionist toward him, uh, especially when it, especially later on when he could fly away with Ilza, just him and her, and have him arrested and charged for him for charged for his crimes. But yeah, his character is essentially a a Rick, but in a much different way. It reminds Rick of what he used to do in the past. Uh, but of course he's a much different character and, his whole, and he holds a lot of power where he is currently at, which is why the Germans want to get rid of him because he's slipped through the fingers. He's died more or less four times and he still somehow escapes that. Uh, so yeah, clearly R- Victor Laszlo is a pretty powerful character in this climate uh, and that's something that Rick now has to deal with because Ilsa is with him. And as we come to find out, uh, once again, you can't stay neutral in this kind of a situation.
0: And I think that's important to note that it's Laszlo and Ilsa who reignite this kind of just passion for life again within Rick. Right. She more so the romantic side and and Laszlo ignites more so the heroic side of Rick who has kind of just given up in uh, most ways. He has the power to do a lot more. And uh, he has chosen not to, but these characters are a catalyst for Rick's character to kind of have this uh, arc, I would say, where he kind of comes back to the good man that he used to be. But I would say he's even changed now because of uh, the love that he experienced between him and Ilsa. Because when he, that uh, young woman who whose young husband is trying to win at the gambling table later on, she says something like, wouldn't you do this for somebody you know if you were in the situation and he said i've never had anybody love me that much mm-hmm. come to find out ilsa does love him that much and he kind of does that for them when with getting on the plane so those are a lot a lot of this movie does a great job of weaving a story that has kind of callbacks throughout the movie but they're not just callbacks they're actually organic like uh, character and story arcs
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I love this. I really like this scene. And this also kind of happens a bit later. But the scene with the couple, uh, we find out she came in with Renault. Once again, the guy with questionable loyalty. And we do kind of find out that Renault is also kind of a guy who kind of sets up other people with women in this this, uh, situation. (laughs) But yeah, we come to find out she got here because of Renault probably for this reason, so she could talk to Rick. And once again, we see Rick kind of dip his feet into this water of helping a guy out. Unfairly, to be uh, to be more correct, I guess you could say. <laughs> so he rins enough money, and then Rick tells him get out and don't come back, and that's how they get their exit visa. Renault is immediately suspicious of this. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it's very interesting how this movie, of course, it has a big take on love. And a big take on honor and what you should do for your country versus what you should do. What, what more? Or less, the biggest question of this movie. Is the biggest, I guess, uh, challenge is uh, human desire versus what's right in the end. And it's very interesting how you get a bunch of things about love. This is one of those scenes when the when the couple comes to him. Of course, you have Elza, which is a one, which is probably the most personal to Rick in the situation. But then you got Laszlo and Rick himself, his past, which are kind of symbols for what's right in this climate versus the desire that one has to maybe be free or to have what one wants, which is with Elza, things like that. It's very interesting how this movie brings this up and then finds a way to tie them together and show how they can cooperate.
0: Right, and you're hitting on one of the big worldviews of this movie, which I would say is anti-romanticism. Romanticism is more or less essentially what happens between the two characters in titanic where rose throws caution to the wind she abandons all reason and you know quote follows her heart to go with jack despite knowing nothing about him and uh, that's a very romanticized ideal to be able to do something like that and we also see uh this play out towards the end where it seems to be very pro-romanticism where uh rick and ilsa ilsa's like i'm just going to leave my husband i'm going to disregard the right thing to do so we can just you know be adulterous about it which would be romanticism but then come to find out no that's not the right thing to do so this movie ultimately ends on a place of anti-romanticism where instead of follow your heart it's do what you know to be the morally correct thing and i think that's great i'm really glad the movie goes there For a while, I was afraid that, whoa, she's going to leave. And that's what makes it hard is because we're almost to the point of championing adultery. We almost want Rick and Ilsa to be together. But, oh, my gosh, wait a minute. We're championing adultery on the dissolution of a marriage. That's a horrible thing. So the movie really does play with your emotions with that. And just like with the Maltese Falcon, um, Bogart's character, he does the right thing in the end. It's really questionable. It's going to make you sweat, but you know what? He will do the right thing. I love that.
1: Yeah. And I mean, well, there's a lot more we can talk about when we get to that point because there's still a lot more movie we have to oh, yes. walk through before we actually solidify in this idea of anti-romanticism. But yes, a, this movie is something when you when we break it down. My dad kind of explained this to me a while back before I actually sat down to watch it for this. He says that it's really a message about love and honor. What's the best Thing to do even though you love somebody the best thing is honor in this instance and of course we'll expand upon that uh in a second but yeah that's something that at the time was maybe not the most unique idea but something that really hadn't ever been expressed in this kind of a way before
0: oh yes yeah it it uh really hadn't um very much the opposite Uh, was kind of seen in gone with the wind now i still think that's a anti-romanticism movie but it kind of ends on more of a darker note than this one would end on a positive note so that's i guess that's the only example i could think of off the top of my head that quickly right but uh, before we go too far into that that's a bit more later into the film Uh, we kind of start to find out the connections between sam ilsa and rick and ilsa wants we have to talk about um as time goes by of course misquoted play it again sam that's not even in the movie
1: yeah it's something much different yeah it's like uh play it for me sam once or something like yeah that. she says it's not played it against Sam. right
0: she says play it once sam for old time's sake and right, then he's like, What are you talking about? <laughs> She's like.
1: Yeah. He's trying so hard to avoid the situation because he knows what's going to happen. Yes.
0: And then finally she says, Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. Never once is play it again, Sam. <laughs> yep.
1: Yep. It's kind of like, Good evening, Clarice. One of those misquoted lines that actually isn't in the movie. I mean, you know it's from the movie, but it actually, that's not how it's said.
0: Well, isn't like the. The whole Darth Vader, Luke, I am your father, misquoted yeah, as well. He doesn't. That's
1: different too. He act. goes, "No, I am your father, not Luke. I am your father." Yeah, yeah it's, one of those it's two.
0: misquoted, but nevertheless, a very famous line that is actually not a famous line. Yeah, um, yeah. But I will say this movie does have a lot of famous lines.
1: Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, once again, we've talked about we mentioned this earlier. This movie has a big influence. So, of course, it's no surprise that there's a ton of lines that are just kind of known throughout uh, the society because of the influence of this movie.
0: Yeah, six lines appeared in the AFI, American Film Institute, list. Uh, the most right. of any. Uh, the other one tied for second was Gone with the Wind and oh, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, the other famous lines in this movie are, Louis, I think this is the beginning of A Beautiful Friendship. That was number 20. Yep. Uh play it sam play as time goes by 28 round up the usual suspects 32 we'll always have paris 43 of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world she walks into mine that was the 67th and also ilsa i'm no good at being noble but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world that almost made the list but of course the one that um was also very famous uh here's looking at you kid right used four times guess what not in the original script
1: yeah i heard about that it was it was ad libbed by uh by bogart right
0: yeah so between takes he was teaching Berkman how to play poker and that was just right. something he said to her while playing poker and then they were like oh, what did you just say say that oh, in perfect. the
1: movie <laughs> <laughs> that's funny how that kind of thing works out i mean you hear about this every once in a while where things that are Actors will add the a certain mm-hmm. scene. Uh, I know one of the more recent examples is a line from Whiplash that 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 uh, J.K. Simmons says. He didn't. He I, I forget exactly what it is. I think it's uh, something about being self righteous, and that wasn't in the original script, but they added it in anyway. He has said it during the scene. They kept it in. Yeah, yeah.
0: I remember that. Very cool when actors do that because that. I think that adds an extra dimension of yeah. uh, reality, believability to the movies when the actors are right. in character in such a way that they would say something that the uh, screenwriter didn't even think of. And
1: right. It's also interesting, too, because this this line is kind of a personal connection between these two characters is here's looking at you kid because they were he was teaching her poker uh backstage or I guess between takes it's kind of like a personal thing personal connection that yeah. they have too it's kind of interesting
0: it is uh and then we after Rick's scene is over after that half hour scene is over they're in the bar uh that night Rick is very troubled that Ilsa and Laszlo are back Bogart plays it off in a great way I rewatched that scene twice it's very short where uh at first, you just kind of see him dismiss it, and he kind of sits down, and the, and Elsa and Frank, uh, Laszlo leave. But watch it again, and it all plays out in a much better way. Like you can actually focus on it. His his expression is very troubled. He sits down slouched and he almost even puts his head down right before they leave his bar. I thought, wow, he conveys such emotion in just that, you know, 10 second shot.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even even uh, without the music in this scene, when he walks in and notices Elsa for the first time, he kind of stops in the middle of a sentence. He's like, I cannot believe that she's back. You know, mm-hmm. and, like he's been isn't he's been he that year and a half apart trying to get her out of his mind as we come to find out a little bit later. Yes. And then. Kind of find out she's in his bar now. Uh, the re- the woman that essentially broke his heart, more or less. It, there's a lot of em- uh, there's a lot of emotion being displayed here, but with not much dialogue to back up this idea. It's all told mostly to just, to, through just raw acting from both Bogart and Bergman here.
0: And I gotta say, I love the scene. Uh, I don't know, it might be my favorite scene. At least it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, is when he is sitting at the bar at night remembering and he's telling Sam to play the song like if she can if she can take it so can I and he expresses such bitter feelings about uh all of all of it and I think we get a a well-told flashback it's the only flashback of the whole movie that gives them well that gives us a peek into what they were doing they were just you know falling in love and they barely knew anything about each other and it was very right. romanticized. Of, we don't know a thing about each other, but we're in love and we want to get married. And, uh, but this over, over, uh, this looming World War II is going to crush their dreams, uh, essentially, and uh, kind of crush the world, therefore, and kind of kill that romanticism, you could say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's also interesting, too, because they more or less fall in love to kind of escape the war uh, at least the, the looming threat that there is a war happening. We, they try as hard as they can to remove themselves from that. They look out the window and they hear that the Germans are coming over the loudspeaker and they just try to ignore it. And they kind of even mentioned this at one point. Uh, yeah, they're trying to remove the bad parts, which is the war out of their minds, but at a certain point, you can't just you can't just do that. Reality once again is going to come knocking, and Rick has to get out of there. He can't stay because they will take him. The Germans will take him because they, they because of his past. And we find out later that Ilza was married, but found out that Laszlo was dead. But then turns out he wasn't dead. And there is one scene where you do kind of get this feeling that something's just not right with with Ilza until you find out later what exactly the reason is. And so, yeah, this it, this is very really interesting because they're trying... This love between them is very skin deep. It's not very... It's, not, it's pretty shallow for the most part. They even say, don't ask any questions. They're only there just for kind of, I guess, the thrill of it. And to escape their current reality, which they end up not being able to do because you can't escape reality in this... and Really at all, I guess.
0: Yeah. And... Well, hold on. Let me restart with that. Uh, this scene also does uh, further go to show how Rick's attitude has been shaped. There's a scene where she says, that's where he says, you know, what if we get married and go here? And she says, that's too far ahead to plan. Well, then later on, Yvonne at the bar says, what are you doing tonight? And he said, I never plan that far ahead. Right. Uh, I mean, that's just that night, but that just shows he's just very, he's closed himself off. From love, from getting – he doesn't want to get hurt again, essentially. He doesn't want to uh, right. more or less fall in love again. And yeah, his heart is broken despite their relationship, yes, being skin deep. Uh, they had a lot of feelings tied up in this uh, situation. And uh, I think that's natural and that makes sense. And Oh,
1: yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, especially with this looming threat of the world is going crazy – and having somebody who's there to just kind of love and nurture, it kind of eases that pain that the world around your reality is not necessarily suitable for the moment. But of course, we come to find out that Ilza is actually married. A little bit later on, she has to, and she leaves him at the train station uh, with just a note saying, "I can't. They can't be with you. I'm sorry." Uh, but know that I still love you and it hurts. And we, yeah, of course we get to see the stark contrast of him leaving on the train and then him knocking over the glass uh, of alcohol and he gets really mad and all kinds of stuff uh, in this scene. It, of course that references when she knocks over the glass of her, uh, of her wine earlier uh, when, when she, when she says kiss me as if for the last time. Uh, yeah. the We get to see, you get to understand? Uh, it's interesting too, because this movie doesn't necessarily, try and pull as your heartstrings as much here. It's just trying to get you to understand where Rick is at in his life from where he was and why he is the way he is now. Uh, but although this does come back a bit later, we do understand and get to pull out our heartstrings a bit more when we see Rick's reaction to what all was happening so far. And just this one day.
0: Yeah. This scene is more so trying to depict more or less the end of the world. Almost. Yeah. And I'm sure at the time, audiences would have been identifying with this. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, Especially if you were seeing it with a loved one, it would be like, wow. So our world's kind of coming to an end in the overall sense because of this major war that's forcing us out of of the place where we want to live, like uh, basically of our home. And then it's also ripping our relationship apart, at least that's kind of – it seems to at least be – contribution to that if not the direct cause so watching this in 2018 it's a little hard for me to feel that way i like when i watch it i get that on screen but i guess i don't have the same emotions because i've never gone through a world war and right uh, rick's world essentially collapses in on itself and so he just flees and becomes this closed off hermit
1: right and we also don't have the draft being utilized yet in this war that i guess pseudo-war thing that we're in with uh, whoever else. Yeah, yeah, the draft back at the time yes. was a big thing for reasons that were pretty obvious. Uh, it was a world war. And so that's also kind of a looming threat, is that we're losing loved ones because some of are probably even being drafted. And so it's definitely a more of an allegorical term in this movie. But you're right. We don't necessarily see this this as much anymore. The, thing, the, the draft has been used for a long time. But even then, at this time, it makes a lot of sense. Because, as you were saying, uh, you lose a lot of people to this war. Because there's a lot happening. And at the time, this hit hard with a lot of people, I'm sure. And today, although you understand a lot of things, it doesn't hit, I guess, the same chords as it did back when it was released. Uh, back in those days not to say that it doesn't still work because it absolutely does but it's just a much different movie i guess it's more it also has a more period piece like aesthetic to it because of what it, of because of its themes of war and things like that in it that are more subject to the times that it came out than it does now once again they are still very relevant but they are just played a bit they're played and viewed a bit differently than what it was back when it was when it was released
0: and this scene calls into question ilsa's character as a person we can tell she's in anguish during this scene but it also does kind of seem that she found a better deal or a better option or she did leave rick for some reason that isn't justifiable and it is justifiable but when you're looking through this lens of you broke my heart then you're kind of thinking well what the heck is going on and i think the scene is uh Gosh, I'm trying to think of the right adjective for it because it's so great when Rick is reading the note and the rain is washing it away. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, their relationship is being washed away as well. It's just being wiped away and they oh, think yeah. they'll never see each other again. But just the shot of the note with the water dripping down and like just ruining the ink. And that's the possibly the only piece of her that will ever have. But it'll be completely ruined. So he has nothing left of her. It's a great scene. It's tragic. But uh, great, great scene.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we do kind of find out, of course, at the time as you were saying, her motives are kind of questionable. Uh, but when we come to find out later, she left because Laszlo, her her legal husband, yeah. was alive, not n- not dead as she thought. Whoops. And so her loyalty, although at the time it was questionable, <laughs> is understood much later on why she left Rick. It was more out of I guess, a, once again, a loyalty thing. She was very loyal to her husband. And even though she didn't know... It, I guess it depends on your viewpoint if it's right or wrong of what she did. But she just didn't know that Laza was still alive until the day that she was... Like, the day before they all left, I guess. Or no, it was the day that they left because they were going to meet that, that afternoon. Um, Yeah. That, it's interesting that her loyalty is... Because uh, loyalty is a big thing in this movie, and it's interesting that we have this take, this interesting take on loyalty of uh, maybe just not even, not even really knowing some certain things.
0: I mean, I think it's cool, though that she didn't tell Rick why she just right. l- left him hanging. She abandoned him, and right. she did. For trick all we know, him. it
1: could have made the situation even worse. Yeah, she did. If she did tell him,
0: yeah, I don't know. It's just such a hard thing to go through, and I do think right. that is a great twist to find out because. Ilsa comes with Victor, and I, I don't know any connection or relationship between them at all. You just think, probably a boyfriend. And Rick is like, great, what are you doing here? Why would you bring your boyfriend all the way to Casablanca to rub it in my face? And he doesn't think that. I'm just being facetious. But right, right. Then coming to find out, she's like, well, he's my husband. And uh, that's, that's a big shock. I think that's a great twist. And this movie has many twists, but I think this one... Uh, works well to find out oh i was actually married and i thought my husband was dead at the hands of the nazis but he wasn't And right uh this scene when the when the flashbacks over and when we get this scene between him and ilsa which is pretty brilliant how the door flies open and she's in a white dress with the light behind her the musical cue the close shadowy uh uh shot of rick's face Oh, my goodness.
1: And we even get the music. How uh, The main theme of As Time Goes By is playing in a minor key here as well. Kind of showing that their relationship is soured. I mean, obviously. No, that's a good point. But yeah.
0: Oh, it's just a brilliant scene. And we're 49 mm-hmm. minutes into the movie, but it doesn't even feel that long.
1: I know, yeah, and we also, of course, get this famous line of of all the gin joints and all the places in all the world, she walks right into mine. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a very famous line, I know we've mentioned a few others in this movie that are also very famous, uh, since we're on the top uh, top 100 list of the AFI, but yeah, this scene is, even this scene alone is really popular and really well known, because it is really, really good. Oh, and
0: like Rick's anguish is so palpable. He's so cruel oh, yeah. to her, but I want to hear her out. Rick doesn't. Rick just is like, "You're a you know a tramp who just went around with a bunch of men, didn't you?" And you—that's right. kind of person you are. She's there to explain to him, and yeah, she's kind of giving him the story where she's like, "I worshipped him and loved him. I was a young girl who didn't know anything." And he's like, "Whatever. I'm drunk. I don't want to hear it." And right. it's so cruel how he drives her away but the next day they have to go to the police station because laszlo is so confident i mean the guy uses his real name and everything it doesn't even use a disguise it just strolls right into the bar and everywhere and Gestapo's right there yep and i i will say this is this part is believable when strasser says give us the names and we'll let you go because they're worth more to us than you and he right. says no way And but what follows right here, I found to be quite unbelievable when uh, he says, you can't touch me because this is neutral territory. I'm like, you know what? The Nazis have been invading everywhere. They're hellbent on overtaking the world. No way the Nazis would care what Captain Renault would think. He's like, this is Renault is in charge here. He's not going to you know, let you do this to me. And I, I found that to be very unbelievable, and Roger Ebert did as well. In his review, he said, this is unbelievable. You think that French neutral Morocco is going to stop the Nazis?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I do kind of buy the fact that they, at the same time, maybe not even don't even have enough evidence to rightfully arrest him on ground that they do not own. Uh, at the same time, though, you are right. They are Germans. Uh, they will at least the Nazi Germany at this point, they're pro. They are more prone to just arrest him outright because of the things he's done in the past, regardless of where he's at. Uh, yeah, this is a criticism. It's one that I can kind of buy and get past because uh, this is very neutral ground, and they don't exactly have the resources or maybe even the uh, the government and the, where they're at to back them up in their decision to arrest him. Uh, at the same time. So I can buy it, but I do understand where the criticism is coming from.
0: We have a a needless, semi-confusing transition scene that I had to rewatch because I got so confused. So the scene right after this is right before uh, we see Rick and Ferrari in the Blue Parrot. We have the scene of... This We don't even see the guy's face for the most part, except at a really weird angle for just a bit. Talking about, hey, I want to sell this. Where can I sell this at? And the guy says, oh, you want to go see Ferrari at the Blue Parrot on the black market? I'm confused who this guy is because in the next shot, at first I thought it was maybe Rick. But because in the next shot we see Rick, we don't even see that I go to the Blue Parrot. I think I figured out this is the guy from the very beginning who pickpockets the couple and we also see him pickpocket another couple. I just felt like this. We just needed to go from the police station to the Blue Parrot. We don't need this transition scene. It was just kind of out of left field for me.
1: Right. Well, to be fair, they did say that their that Laszlo and Elza their next step is going to be the black market, and we do kind of get a small line that Ferrari is the one who runs the black or who runs the black market. But we don't really have a definitive answer, and so this is that, that scene that kind of defies. Okay, well, Ferrari is the one who owns the who owns the blue parrot, and he also runs the black market. So it's more that's just setting up. This is where we're at, and we come to find out that Rick also comes here to talk to him about the, those letters and stuff. Uh, it wasn't as jarring for me, but I do I do see why that is a bit of a an interesting jump to have to try to kind of explain things really quick and then get into the scene.
0: Yeah, I guess it's just because. It doesn't follow the preceding scene, and it doesn't follow the following scene, I guess. It's just kind of plopped down in here, I guess, like you said, for the specific purpose of spelling out to us, Ferrari at the blue parrot runs the black market.
1: Right. Uh, Right. It's kind of just like a defining line that would have a couple of lines of dialogue to just define Ferrari's character if we were ever confused.
0: That could have been cleared up, I think, when Rick goes to talk to Ferrari. Ferrari could have slipped something in there saying... Oh Rick, you know I control ninety percent of the black market here, and, uh, and the whole scene of them talking is about how he wants the exit visas. So then clearly we know, oh well, that's probably where they need to go. I think it could have been cleaned up a bit more for a movie that is very clean, that has you know great pacing, great dialogue, doesn't really have many sloppy areas at all, save for. That unbelievable scene where the Nazis are going to be stopped by Captain Renault, essentially. And this just confusing transition scene. Those are really my only two issues with it.
1: Right. Right. Um. So it, it is interesting in this scene that Ferrari really, uh, Ferrari kind of has, uh, the, when they first meet, he has this notion or has this hunch that he knows, Rick knows where these layers of transit are at. And he of course, Rick of course, blows him off and says, basically, he doesn't acknowledge the fact that he does have it. And then when, uh, when our when when Laszlo and Elsa show up, he says that I really could only get you one. Um, you'll have to maybe just lay, have Elsa go and you stay. And then Elsa and Elsa and Laszlo kind of talk, and they said, no, we're just gonna go together. And they and he said he gives them to Rick and says I think Rick knows where those letters of transit are at. This kind of sets up the fact that um, this sets up the fact that this question of is Rick going to give them these letters of transit? Is he going to use it for them or is he going to use it for himself? Because he hasn't used it yet. To be fair, it's only been really been like a day or two. No, it's only really been a day that he's had these letters of transit. But it brings to this question: Is he going to use it for himself? Or going to use it for for them, and is he going to? Because now he's kind of in this this like it's in this pool like everybody else that he like he talked to uh, our boy uh, no what's his name uh, Cairo from Oh Ugarte. Uh, Maltese Falcon, yeah Ugarté he's he's falling into where our Ugar- Ugarté was, which is selling these letters of transit. And so it does kind of bring this question of, is he going to do this or is he going to, what? what is he going to do? Because he's kind of in this impossible situation where he can't stay neutral with this. And now they're looking for these letters of transit, uh, Laszlo and Ilza.
0: Yeah, this is, they come to find out they will need Rick. I don't think they really wanted to have to go through Rick because of Ilsa and Rick's past. But come to find right. out, we do need Rick. And I will say, I really do like Ilsa's dedication to her husband, especially in this scene. I think Bergman portrays it in a genuine way. And I do think they actually have uh, chemistry. I think Laszlo is kind of this stone cold, very stoic type of person. Now he does yeah. have some more scenes depicting more warmth. But uh we do have this really brilliant dry humor line that would is very in keeping with Lazo's character when she said, uh, you've never left me when I was sick and I had all these troubles going on. And he said, I always meant to, but something always came up. And right. I, I thought that was just a great scene um, because he doesn't mean that. Uh, it's just a great, nice scene to show their relationship because we yeah. haven't really got that in the movie. Yet.
1: Right. Yeah, right. And I do like this line that Laszlo has, uh, I think it's Laszlo, this line comes up with, uh, did you sleep well? And he says, yeah, I slept well. And then he says, that's strange, you're not supposed to sleep well in Casablanca. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's just an interesting line to have. Because uh, because of the things that already are happening in Casablanca and the person himself, it's an interesting line to bring up in this in this movie. But we do find out earlier. There's a scene earlier where a member of the Free French, this is with the double cross uh, symbol that they have. We see this in the opening. But one of the members approaches Laszlo and tells him more or less about this underground meeting that's going to be happening here in Casablanca and this is where Laszlo goes not long after that uh, not long after this scene I believe um, well it's, it takes a while but they do mention this is the scene where they do I guess they. I guess I'm getting confused confuse my timeline because Ray, this is the scene where we do mention that if you give us a names for everybody then we'll let you kind of be free or whatever uh, but we do. they do go to the underground meeting a little bit later in the movie.
0: Yeah that's Towards the end of the movie, the movie takes place essentially over 48 hours. We start the night in Rick's technically, we see during the day. Then the next day is where we were just talking about them going to Ferrari. And he goes to the meeting that night and gets arrested. Then the next day, uh, the next following night is when they, they leave. So it's... It's a fairly contained story. It doesn't take place over too long of a time, but uh, quite a bit happens between them. And we do go back to Rick's, and we kind of introduce uh, some more of that uh, kind of lighthearted humor with some of the things going on. And, uh, I mean, a little, uh, some racy lines as well, especially for 42 when the young woman says, my husband is with me too, and Bogart says he is. Captain Renault is getting broad-minded. Uh,
1: yeah, it kind of solidifies Renault's, And really, the Germans uh, the Germans that are here are kind of not necessarily the most pure, I guess you could say. Renault is definitely not, especially now that we know that he also kind of helps them out with women, more or less.
0: Yeah, and uh, what should we talk about next? Hold on, lost my place. Oh, okay. But yeah, right after Rick helps that couple win at the, the lottery table, which we've talked about already, there's a line that says, how are we doing? Rick says, how are we doing tonight? And the guy at the table says, a few thousand less than I expected. This movie just time and again has essentially perfect dialogue. The most mm-hmm. witty, perfect dialogue, perfect sequences. Before that, we got the uh, German couple or something where they're like, we're only going to speak English now. And then right after that, they start oh, yeah. speaking German. And I'm just like, why is the writing in this movie so perfect? I, I mean,
1: mm. I, the, the couple is all like, did watch such much? Yes. Clearly, their English isn't great. Which <laughs> is <funny>. I know.
0: <laughs> I, and I just think that's amazing how I think that's a, just a testament to the writing because there has been very few movies following this that has had a caliber of writing like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, not many.
1: Right. Right, and to be fair, uh, to also bring up maybe uh, something that I noticed is that the guy, the roulette wheel, same guy who approaches, uh, same guy who approaches Rick early on, and says, "Some guy just won this much money. I'm sorry, it won't happen again." And then Rick comes Rick up to him the that, that scene and says, how are we doing? And asking him uh, what the money's like. He says, a few thousand short than what I was expecting. It just kind of comes back, uh, even though it's not really necessarily an mm-hmm. important plot point. It's something that does come back in this movie to kind of solidify the climate that is Rick's.
0: So do we want to talk about the scene where Ilsa goes to Rick? Let's
1: see, what part is that? Is that... That's next, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
0: well, because we have this funny scene where Renault shuts down the gambling hall just because Strasser is mad. Rick let the let let them sing the French national anthem to overpower the German anthem, which right.
1: I... Well, we probably should at least mention that at least the scene when they have this battle of the bands, more or less, between the two, because it does solidify how dangerous uh, Laszlo's character is. Right.
0: It's very Scott Pilgrim-esque, Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is.
0: <laughs> it kind of is. Uh, I think it just goes to show the influence that uh, Laszlo is, even with the Nazis, the Gestapo right across the room from him. He's not going right. to back down. He's not going to kowtow to their fear tactics. And he gets almost the whole restaurant in on singing this French national anthem because the Germans are there. Uh, They're starting a fight with – one of the Germans started a fight with another uh, French officer. Rick shoves him off, says, I don't like politics here. Take it outside. And uh, But then they bring in a political song more or less. Maybe not necessarily political. I guess it's more of a national song, the national anthem. And Rick permits it to go on uh, on purpose. Uh, It's a great scene, yeah.
1: Yeah, and this really does kinda of go to goes this really does go to show that Laszlo himself is a very powerful character, uh, and something that is a threat to the Germans in this in this city, because he they more or less overpower the Germans who are trying to just kind of enjoy themselves, but at the same time you kind of see them kind of being a little bit rambunctious here in the scene where they cause a fight at the bar earlier with Yvonne, and then now they're singing uh they're singing a song that is kind of a bit controversial maybe because this is neutral ground. And so Laszlo begins up the band. They play their own national anthem and they end up overtaking it. Uh, yeah, This it kind of just goes to show, and then, of course, this is a line of dialogue, said right after this whole entire thing happens. Stresser says, more or less, that this is why we need to arrest him. He is very dangerous and a big threat to what we are, to us as Germans. And it just kind of, I guess, is more of a visual that, well, one, it kind of makes the stakes even higher, but it's also a visual to how how powerful Laszlo actually is in this climate, in this war that, that he's been operating in.
0: But then after that, he goes to the resistance meeting, the gambling hall is shut down, and Ilsa comes to Rick, and her loyalties switch very quickly, it seems like, but I think she does a good job of portraying that, where she is extremely conflicted, because she does really love Rick, or at least maybe the idea of Rick, what she knew him as for only a few days. Uh, She knows Lazlo a lot more, and I it's i think it's safe to say she has more in common with him because somebody you've, you're married to and you've been with with much more of your life than rick uh this kind of draws back into this whole romanticism and uh i i guess i am a little surprised that she says she won't have the strength to leave rick again uh, were you surprised when she said that
1: yeah i was a bit surprised i mean it is also kind of bringing back into what they used to be, you know, their love back at the time and how powerful it was because they were in a situation, they were together in a situation that was pulling them away from what was actually happening outside. Whereas when she's with Laszlo, she can't really escape it uh, with him. Whereas with Rick, she was kind of able to get away from it all. Uh, and so that's, I. that's what I'm seeing is that she, reason why she's finding it hard to leave him is because of this, she would be able to escape this war and what Laslo does, and this danger of the world around her—if she were—if she were to be with Rick, but at the same time, not necessarily being loyal here, she she would—if she left with Rick, then she would kind of be in a worse situation than what she was before uh, with him before she knew that hey, my husband is actually still alive.
0: And I think what she really cares about is she does care about Laslo. She cares about his safety. She doesn't yeah. want to leave Rick for the purpose of abandoning him to the clutches of the Nazis because they kind of work out this deal where she says, I'll stay with you if you can get him to safety. So she kind of wants all sides to win, although it's really surprising how this is her husband and she's not being very considerate of their love. But like we, like I mentioned before, we really don't see, um, too much love being expressed between the two of them, except in that one really nice scene where I said the chemistry worked really well, where she's like, you never left me. And he's like, well, I always meant to, but something always came up. Right. Uh, you're right. right. You're a big, you make a good point that she is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because she is a lot younger than Laszlo and Rick, because Rick said, what were you doing 10 years ago? She was like, oh, I was getting braces on my teeth or something, insinuating... Right. That she was like 12 years old or something, very young along right. those lines. So she's in her early 20s right now, I would assume, whereas we know Rick is nearly 40, and I'm sure Laszlo is at least that age as well. So she's just a young woman that didn't probably didn't expect to get caught up in this massive secret war effort. And now it looks like here's right. the end of the line. There's no way they're getting out of here. She knows Rick can provide safety, a more of a romantic life that she probably desired. Whereas Laszlo, she even had to keep uh, their marriage secret from their friends. She had to say, and I think it's just that secrecy also that it's just a hard life. And I think that's portrayed here very well. And she just kind of wants to get out from under it.
1: Right. And we do find out that her loyalty still remains with her husband uh, because she's very shocked to find out that, Uh, Rick kind of set them up and then set them up again and then set them up kind of again, I guess you, but she still goes along with her husband, even though Rick was planning on taking her or supposedly he was planning on taking her and leaving and leaving Laszlo there to just be arrested by the, not by the, by the Germans. But we do kind of see that even though this, is questioning her loyalty here between what she really wants, this kind of safety net, uh, To a certain extent, and then you've also got her actual love, which is her husband, the person that she's loyalty that she's legally bound to is where her loyalty really should stand. She gets caught in this dichotomy of which one should I pick? Like you said, between a rock and a hard place. Neither one is a great choice, but the one with saying with her husband is definitely the most right choice kind of in the similar situation that Rick is in but hers is more based on love whereas Rick's is more based on i guess more of a political move and also so based on love is kind of a, kind of the middle ground for really everything this movie has in terms of ideas he's caught between it all and has to decide what is the right thing to do in this in this situation with these with this couple with these two people which one of them i have a past with and one i one could be turned over really easily to the to the uh, I guess the bad side more or less and have him completely removed from the situation he could very easily take the way that he wants and just take Elza with the with the uh, transit letters and leave and no one would no one would really bat an eye but that's not the right thing to do here and that's something that is really portrayed in the scene between these two characters and how complex it is because you know that they love each other but, you know, and they know that it's a bad idea to stay together.
0: And I think the movie does a good job of leading us to believe that Rick is going to make the wrong choice. Right. And, uh, I mean, we do see him go and see uh, sell Laszlo uh, out to Renault, but Renault isn't completely buying it. But Rick is basically saying, you know, you, you, you can't hold Laszlo here forever because he attended some secret meeting last night. I'm going to get him caught on a really big charge. And a side note on that secret meeting, by the way, for some reason, I, listeners, let me know if you agree with me or not, or or if I'm just crazy, but I always feel like this scene reminds me of the scene in Gone with the Wind, where Rhett Butler and Ashley and the doctor, they get caught at a secret meeting, and they have to flee back to the house, and then they have to pretend like nothing's wrong. The scenes are very similar with their parallels, you know, they're different, of course, but I just had to say that because every time I watch it, I'm like, why does this feel so similar? I don't know. Right. right. But like I said.
1: Couldn't exactly answer that. Haven't seen Gone with the Way.
0: That's what what we're watching next time you're in town. Okay. Carve out (laughs) at least four (laughs) and a half hours. Four hours. hours. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But uh, like
0: I was saying, I think the movie does a good job because for a while, I'm surprised that they're going to do this, but I do believe, well, if I don't necessarily believe it, I am open to the fact that Yes. Rick is actually going to sell them out and keep Ilsa. I'm believing it for a while. And we even see Rick selling uh, his cafe to Ferrari to further solidify Rick is leaving.
1: Right, right. He's basically giving everything up from what we understand at the time to leave with Elsa, have Victor being taken away essentially he's taking the easy route and what he wants and what he thinks uh, essentially the, the route that he thinks is best for him uh, which is like I mentioned take Elza jail Laszlo but we come to find out uh, and it is also interesting too is that even Ilsa herself has to make an adult decision and holds Rick at gunpoint now, of course, Rick kind of calls her bluff and says, Yeah, okay, sure, go ahead and pull the trigger. you would be doing me a favor, you know. Uh, but we come to find out a second later that Rick kind of set everybody up here in a kind of a perfect storm for him where he is able to have Renault believe he's going to take, or have Renault believe he's going to take though then turn the gun on him, and then reveal that. They are all going to the airfield, and that they are the ones that are going to escape. And they come to find out later, at the very end of the movie, which we'll get to in a second, that that wasn't even his plan. Only kind of his plan the whole time. Uh, his plan was really to get them to get Lazlo and her off to safety, and have him just kind of deal with everything else. But yeah, this is an interesting scene because this is when we kind of begin to begin to realize that maybe, maybe with uh, with Rick here. Even though his morals and loyalty was a bit questioned there for a second, maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe it's, maybe he's smarter than what we than the, what the audience is aware of. Right, and
0: also the writers were in a little bit of a bind though. How they were going to wrap this up, how they were going to resolve this, because according to the production code at the time, which we talked about in our MPAA discussion, which I recommend you go listen to. A woman could not leave her husband for another man in cinema at the time. That would have been uh, impermissible to show on screen. So I didn't know that, though. So apparently the writers knew that and they're thinking we can't do this. And I'm, and I'm glad they didn't. I, I wouldn't want to root for her to leave her husband anyway. But uh the two writers were twins, and apparently they were at a stoplight on like Sunset Boulevard or something. And they're like, How do we wrap this up? And then all of a sudden, they looked at each other and they said to each other, Round up the usual suspects. And from there, they figured out that, uh, you know, there'd be kind of a bit of a happily ever after for everybody involved. And it would still maintain the kind of lightheartedness that we were initially set up with. And it wouldn't have. Um, this kind of dark twist at the end, like it seemed like there could be.
1: Right, and there is an interesting line when uh, that is said from Renault when more or less he sets everybody up when Rick sets everybody up. He says uh, when he's getting ready to handcuff and sign over, uh, Laszlo he says, "I think for once, love has triumphed over virtue." And then turns around, and Rick has a gun pointed yeah. at him, and he says, "I've got this gun pointed right at your heart." And he it, and he says, "That is my least vulnerable spot." And then goes to the phone <laughs> to call the airport, but instead calls uh, Strasser, Major Strasser, and informs him of stuff uh, that's got, that's about to happen. Uh, yeah, it's it, very interesting lines here where uh, that are being expressed to kind of solidify this idea of uh, love of honor over love.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great scene and, of course, a great line of dialogue that is absolutely something you'd yeah. expect Renault to say, how he, you know, I don't care about anybody. I don't uh, – it's it's really well done. But uh, I think right. the end here is wrapped up really nice with um, them all they, – they kind of all do the right thing. And Rick and Ilsa right. share an iconic moment talking about how we'll always have Paris But Rick is like, you know what? You've got a husband. You've got a place with him. I've got to go back to the fight. And Laszlo says, I know this time our side will win. And we get these really perfect close-up shots of everybody's face here at the end. And uh, an an exciting shootout that I had forgotten about. And I forgot they basically shoot at the same time. But Rick gets the shot off. I was a little afraid here.
1: Right. And it's kind of a big deal because – uh, that's a major of the German army, the German, the Nazi German yeah. army. <laughs> kind of a big deal to shoot him. And luckily, uh, this could have been a terrible thing for Rick. Oh, yeah. But Renault says, run up the usual suspects and kind of lets him off free. He just says, that, yeah, he's been shot. Fine, get the usual suspects. And they might be wrongly accusing somebody of what happened. But at the same time, we do get this perfect re- resolution of Rick... Doing the right thing, despite what he feels he want, despite what he wants, he's doing. He's giving Il- Ilza over to uh, to Laszlo, who she rightfully belongs with, both legally and in kind of a moral sense. In this, in this, in, in in a moral sense, he's giving her over, despite what he feels. He even though he could, as I said earlier, many times actually, very easily, he could just take the tickets for himself and run away with Ilza, No questions asked. It would be super easy. But that's not the right thing to do. That's the easiest route he can take. But at the same time, that's not the right route he that that's not that's not the right route that he they should take. The right route is to let them go off and let them do their own th- and let them go and have Rick do that because he's really the only person who can get them to where they need to go, which is America. Or I guess technically they're going to uh to somewhere else before they go to America. But regardless, this once again is the last stop. Before freedom, and Rick is the one who is the only really the only person after being given these letters to get them away and get them to America because the once again, these letters are no questions asked. Once you once you show them, that's it. You're it's basically a free pass.
0: And I would say this story kind of has elements of the coming of age narrative where the character is uh, they, they don't understand something at the very beginning um usually those kind of stories have to do with growing up and i will say this one does kind of have to do with growing up in a bit of a way where uh ilsa has to grow up also and rick does as well where they're saying we can't go live off some safe little life away from the problems of the world we have to face our problems we have to deal with them and we have to do our part to the best that we can your part is with your husband helping him you know uh i I think it would really crush laszlo and really crush him if ilsa did leave him and everybody right. would be worse off for it and i think it kind of overall goes to show the tone of the war where in the face of this great despair of the nazis where it did seem like they could very possibly win instead of just hiding and going to give up and even the us like you mentioned earlier didn't really want to be involved in the war, but eventually they did become involved. And of course they had been involved by this movie, but I think it goes down to more so the individual as well, where in the face of all this stuff, you could take the easy way out. And in the end, it probably wouldn't be the best way at all. Nevertheless, we need to do our part. And I I think that's just a much better message.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in this last scene, uh, these last few shots, we do see this Vichy water that Renault picks up and then throws in the trash can. And then they walk off into the fog and says, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful, of a beautiful relationship or a beautiful friendship. Uh, yeah this ending is just so nice i mean everything kind of wraps up in the end you yeah once you said like like you said you you can't there are some issues where you you can't just sit on the fence with and the easiest decision or the easiest uh way out is not always and very rarely the best way out and the more and the one that's going to benefit uh more people or benefit anybody else in the end this is the movie that this movie also kind of more or less portrays this through love which is where he could have the love of he could have this old flame that he had back in the day about a year and a half ago but who's that going to help it's only going to help him uh in the long run it's not going to help anybody else it's not going to help the tide of the war which is where laszlo was headed back home it's not going to help elza who loyalty she should reside in him There's many different factors with this with this ending, and it, it chooses the one that once again is the hardest decision that that could have been made because Rick is once again the only one who can really solve this situation, and because he has the power to do so, he picks the right one, not the easiest one.
0: Did you know this was not necessarily the original planned ending?
1: I did not. What was the original so, ending?
0: So, there were plans to shoot a further scene showing Rick, Renault, and a detachment of free French soldiers on a ship to incorporate the Allies' 1942 invasion of North Africa. And at the time, uh, Claude Rains was already on to doing something else, so they couldn't get him back to do it. And then they finally just abandoned it. They said it would be a terrible mistake to change the ending. And thankfully, they didn't add this on at the end it would just be unnecessary
1: right yeah i i don't think that would have worked out very well with that ending
0: and of course as with the maltese falcon quite popular they're like let's make a sequel and with Casablanca, they're like let's make a sequel you know how do you not have the idea of making a sequel to a movie that earned eight academy awards because it would be hugely successful right
1: oh yeah yeah how How do you yeah? Once again, how do you not make a sequel to that that very successful and very well done movie? Yes, Uh,
0: supposedly there was a title that they were floating around called Brazzaville. Uh, If you listen closely in the end of this movie, Renault mentions them going to Brazzaville to help with the resistance, so that's where they got that title from. And supposedly, I guess there was this newspaper article at the time that said Bogart and Green Street would be back. And they'll, uh, and also this actress named Geraldine Fitzgerald will have an important role. So there was news floating around of it coming back. And apparently there have been movies that have attempted to recapture the magic of Casablanca in other settings, such as uh, Cabo Blanco in 1980. It's a South American retooling of Casablanca and Havana from 1990. Those are both poorly received. I had never heard of them. Um, also, apparently, Madonna was going to make a modern day Casablanca in modern day Iraq. That's
1: weird. Madonna it
0: probably would have been garbage. <laughs>
1: that would have been interesting to see.
0: It probably would have been so bad it's good.
1: Yeah, I can I can see that.
0: And apparently, as um as recent as twenty twelve, uh. One of the Warner's granddaughters tried to produce one featuring the search uh, by Rick Blaine and Ilsa Lund's illegitimate son for the whereabouts of his biological father. So basically Blade Runner 2049. (laughs) Yeah,
1: basically. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that would have worked out very well. What would that have to do with Casablanca? And it's themes from this one is what I want to know, how they worked that in.
0: Nothing. Nothing Uh. at all. I I mean, Bogart and Bergman couldn't have come back. They've been dead for a long
1: time. Yeah. Yeah, they would have to, I guess, recast if they were to have them shown in the movie, which... Wouldn't have gone over well, I can guarantee that. You know,
0: in a way I don't I don't want a sequel to this movie, but I do want to see someone make a sequel to like a really old movie and make it a legitimately good sequel. Like we have TV sequel, T V movies to sequels for Gone with the Wind. I don't remember right. what they're called, like Rhett and Scarlet or something. But I want to see a genuinely good sequel because we got a sequel to Blade Runner after thirty years and got a sequel to Inferno, Derragento's Inferno, which Sadly, wasn't very good, but nevertheless, it's just kind of a neat concept. It's like, what if we could continue the story and make it a great story with great storytelling that we rarely see anymore, like Denis Villeneuve did. I don't know. I think that'd be right. interesting. Not to this movie.
1: Though. It would be interesting. You would have to go through a lot of scrutiny, yeah. though, because <laughs> Casablanca is considered to be one of like the classics. That's one of the greats, you know. And to have a sequel or really anything tied to it come out with come tied to it come out would be uh very thin ice you have to do so many things perfect otherwise you're going to be in trouble and even then you're probably still in trouble regardless
0: Denis Villeneuve but it would be interesting Denis Villeneuve did it but I know really Scott's Blade Runner is is probably not
1: as well loved as Casablanca yeah it's not as recognized as Casablanca is which is unfortunate
0: (laughs) well apparently there was a novel called As Time Goes By written by Michael Walsh published in 1998 and it was authored Authorized by Warner Brothers, and the novel picks up where the film leaves off and also tells of Rick's mysterious past in America. The book met with little success, and also David Thompson uh, wrote an unofficial sequel in his 1985 novel, Suspects. Apparently, this was kind of remade by ABC and NBC. There was a series in the 50s and one in the 80s with the same name, and they were poorly received and they were like canceled immediately. Yeah, they didn't last very long. <laughs> no. And apparently Julius yeah. Epstein, who wrote the screenplay, tried to make this into a Broadway musical twice.
1: Now, that would have been interesting. But he failed. The Casablanca musical. He failed. I wonder how you would do that. I don't
0: know. It would yeah, be an does surprise me. Uh, the original play, Everybody Comes to Rick's, was produced in Newport, Rhode Island in 1946. And again in London in 1991. It, but essentially nobody cared and this is the weirdest one of them all the film was adapted into a musical by the Takaruzuka Revu an all female Japanese musical theater company and ran from November 2009 to February 2010
1: that is interesting
0: uh, it's
1: really bizarre <laughs> it's a Japanese rendition of Casablanca <laughs> by
0: all female musical cast
1: that I'm glad to look this up this just seems too interesting to me you should look it up yeah <laughs> I'll have to look it up. Hmm.
0: So as you can see, Casablanca is one of those movies you don't remake. You don't make sequels to. Don't even try because you're going to fail and everybody's going to hate you.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Kind of this one, Citizen Kane. Wizard of Oz Oz has some success, though, with with sequels and stuff. I mean, they haven't all been as influential, but there are plenty of sequels to Wizard of Oz. I guess it just kind of depends on what kind of impact on film it has.
0: There are movies that you would you would never, ever remake. Nobody would ever do. I think it would be Career yeah. Suicide. This movie,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you
0: would never remake Casablanca. You would never remake Alien. Uh, just, I don't know. There's just a number of movies where it's like you just don't ever remake them. And I guess if you are going to remake it, then you better make it super different, kind of like with, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, very different but still of the same name. But those don't have as much prestige as these kind of movies, right? But you just don't, right? Do yeah,
1: it. I, there are some movies you just you just don't touch. This is one of those you just you just leave it alone. It's the best the way that it is. Don't need to add on to it. It's one of those self-contained stories, right?
0: It's impossible. I would say it is. It is impossible to make this any better than it already is.
1: Yeah, I can definitely see that. It would be
0: a waste of time, waste of resources. It would be completely unnecessary. and
1: Career suicide. Yeah, people would just see you as
0: a leech trying to piggyback off of somebody else's success. And they would think you don't have any originality of your own. Right. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Casablanca?
1: Uh, I'm pretty sure it's no surprise that I love this movie. Watching it, and it's, it's funny because even watching it the for the fourth time uh, before recording this, I found myself getting even more interested into the story than what I had in the three viewings prior, even though I had watched this movie no more than a few days before I watched it the second time uh, for this recording, of course. So I, I found myself getting really, really into what I was seeing, and I found that to be quite surprising, and I'm sure that Multiple, but more viewings beyond here would even make it even more so uh, engaging and more enthralling. It's interesting because, for me personally, I am a usually a pretty neutral person when it comes to a lot of things. And although I try to tra- try to stay as neutral as I can, this movie is one of those things where it's just like, yeah, but you can't stay neutral on everything. And there are some things where you just have to take a stance because the neutral way is might even be the worst possible decision you can make. And and having a movie kind of say that is, once again, a challenge for my own personal life, which I really do enjoy. And that, too, and as, of course, as a film, it's absolutely fantastic because it gives you all of these emotions that you can feel that it presents to you. And does it in such an organic way where you can you can laugh, you can maybe even get teared up in a couple of scenes, and you can feel this intensity and this love and drama. Everything that's in this movie uh, works so, so well. You know, the secret that it is so influential because it does things so well and pulls it off in such almost perfection that it has caused itself to be one of those perfect holy grails of cinema right from picked right from the golden age of course there's no secret i absolutely love this movie and i'm surprised i don't actually have a poster of it yet i kind of want to get one i just bought one for blade runner and now i kind of want to get one for this uh anyways i'm gonna give this one a 10 out of 10 uh the highest i recommend i mean what else can i say about it that hasn't already been said Uh, In this review and really from anybody else, people have picked this film apart. This is an absolutely fantastic film, one that I'm glad I own and will absolutely return to in the near future.
0: Casablanca is one of the greatest pieces of cinema of all time. A true classic, if there ever was one. From the dynamic, intricate performances, to the witty, sharp dialogue, to the mood and even the lighting and cinematography. Not to mention the brilliant story of a tangled web of freedom and romance set to the backdrop of World War II. Every aspect of this film is completely perfect and we have rarely seen the likes of such fine caliber since. Casablanca receives my highest recommendation I can give with a very special 11 out of 10 stars. Well listeners thank you so much for joining us with our second Humphrey Bogart review Casablanca. uh, This series has been so strong so far I'm, I'm so excited to review such a strong series of Bogart films. And we will have uh, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre in the Desperate Hours. We'll have those reviews coming to you very soon. Also, make sure to look forward to our uh, upcoming kind of Thanksgiving style special, the first of its kind. We will be talking about The Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, Also, if you missed our-
1: I'm excited about that one.
0: Oh, I'm so excited too. I just saw it in the theaters for the
1: first time. I'm so jealous. Oh, Oh, I saw it was playing at home. And I'm just like, no, I'm not home for it. It was. Oh, I'm so jealous. It was amazing.
0: I can't wait to talk about my experience during our review. And if you missed our Halloween special, it's not too late to go and check it out. We reviewed the cult classic Steven Spielberg, Toby Hooper, Poltergeist. Make sure to definitely go and check that out. And we will have a Christmas review for you, a Christmas special. Uh, We can go ahead and say it. Have we not said it
1: yet? Not yet. Uh, We haven't reviewed it yet. Miracle on 34th Street. I'm excited for this one. I am too. I haven't seen it. Everyone else has seen it. I haven't seen it. It is a
0: classic. I'm very looking forward to uh, reviewing Miracle on 34th Street, one of the greatest Christmas films ever. So I'm looking forward to talking about that with all of you. Also, we have a bit of a kind of a mini anime review series coming up here.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited for this. Uh, Just to see where the conversation goes between these two movies, because I think I briefly mentioned this before, but yeah, Akira is the first one, which is uh, the week after, actually, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. And then the week after that is Your Name. Both these have had more Akira than Your Name, but both these have had a pretty big response when it comes to uh, anime in this Western side of the world. Uh, We'll get into all of that when we review them, but I'm pretty excited for those to see where the conversation goes, because I think this is the first time we've reviewed anything anime on this, on the podcast, if I'm aware.
0: Well, we reviewed Ghost in the Shell this year.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah, we did do that. Okay, fair enough. So it's the second and third time we've done this. But still, I'm excited to see where this goes because it's not like that. It's not as deep and philosophical as those movies are. It's a bit different. Yes,
0: they are different. So I'm looking forward to reviewing those animes as well. I think animes kind of overlooked, especially when it comes to cinema. But these are definitely ones worth checking out. So you want to put those on your list to watch those before we do the review so you're ready to join the discussion with us but listeners we want to thank you so much for sticking with us on this Casablanca one a little longer than usual but this movie is great Uh, we had so much to say about it and we want to hear what you have to say about it as well so go ahead and leave your comments down below about your favorite aspects of the film and what this film means to you we want to engage with you in that discussion we love talking about movies and we love talking about them with you make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode also Uh, share this with your friends and, uh, if you want to help us out, if you want this podcast to stay free, if you like these podcasts, then go ahead and go ahead and support us on Patreon, uh, for just the price of a cup of coffee, you get, uh, bonus podcasts, movie commentaries that we record ourselves. You get our thoughts on the latest news. It's all really cheap and you get a lot of great content. It helps us keep the podcast free, helps us keep the lights on. And go ahead and leave us a five-star review if you're on iTunes or if you're on some other platform. Those five-star reviews really help us get noticed in the rankings so more people can enjoy listening and discussing film with all of us together. I want to thank you again, listeners, and we're coming back with another great Humphrey Bogart review next week. We'll catch you next time.